The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 125, A Song of Ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 today. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is entitled, The Lord Our God, The Lord is One. There are memorable passages in Scripture that are an absolute delight to arrive at and analyze. And then to say, I have preached on that verse or that passage is one of the greatest honors that I will ever carry with me. The naming of Jacob as Israel was one such passage. When the Lord said, I am that I am, in Exodus 3.14, it was like opening a chest of the finest treasure. The same is true with other key verses in the books of Moses. There was one in Ruth, another in Jonah, and one in Esther as well. Then these are found words that are familiar to people who may not have ever read the Bible or they may have such an impact on the world in which we live, or the theology that we espouse, that they stand alone as marvels of wonder and delight. In our sermon today, we will have such a verse. It is considered by many Jews as the centerpiece of their morning and their evening prayer services. Does everybody remember in the uh, David and Goliath sermons that Goliath would come out twice a day and he would taunt the people, and it is certain that this is what they were saying when he was doing that. All right. It was cited by Jesus in the New Testament, and it was given to reveal exactly the opposite of what many people find in it. Adam Clark explains this for the Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ. He says, when this passage occurs in the Sabbath readings in the synagogue, the whole congregation repeat the last word, ahad, 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 for several minutes together with the loudest vociferations. This, I suppose, they do to vent a little of their spleen against the Christians, for they suppose the latter hold three gods because of their doctrine of the Trinity. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 6, 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? 
And who will go for us? In his words, Isaiah says, Va'eshmach et kol Adonai. And I heard the voice of Adonai. That means he heard the voice of the Lord, Yehovah. The words of Yehovah then said, Omer et mi eshlachu mi yelech lanu. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Unless one gets what Moses is saying in today's passage, the words of Isaiah, and indeed many of the words of Scripture, make absolutely no sense at all. But in our evaluation of the word today, we will work to make sense out of these things and to put a right sense of reason into our theology, a God-centered reason. In doing so, much of what is otherwise argued and debated over will fall into its proper place. Of course, one must actually accept that the evaluation is correct and that what Moses is saying is as we will consider it today. To this day, what I tell you is rejected by the unbelieving Jews, as we saw in that particular passage from Adam Clark. But it is they who have been exiled for the past 2,000 years, and it is they who have suffered for their unbelief. For supposed Christian denominations to follow suit in their thinking is suicidal. Let us think clearly, let us reason things out from the greater panorama of Scripture, and may our conclusions be honoring of the Lord God who has so meticulously revealed himself to us in Scripture. May it be so, and may it be to his glory. Marvelous wonders are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, be careful to observe it. It's verses 1 through 3. The opening words of chapter 6 follow exactingly in accord with those of the previous chapter. The people had heard the voice of the Lord, they had seen the terrifying display that accompanied it, and they had heard the words of law, the Ten Commandments. The entire display was so great and terrifying that they asked for Moses to hear the words of the Lord and then to convey his words to them. In response, we read the following, Go and say to them, Return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. While there, we saw that the translation was incorrect. It said, Kal ha-mitzvah ve-ha-hukim ve-ha-mishpatim. All the command, it is singular, and all the statutes and all the judgments. The law is a codified body of law, which is to be dutifully obeyed. It is a single command, which is then defined by the statutes and the judgments of which it is comprised. Chapter 6 now opens with the same thought, but this time it is almost correctly translated. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments. The word commandment is singular. They got that right. And the word statutes and judgments are plural. They are also prefixed by definite articles. They got one of them wrong. There is the duty of the law, meaning the commandment, and then there are the statutes and the judgments, which define the law and which comprise it. But at least they got the majority of the translation correct. What may have happened in this translation is that a different set of translators was assigned to the previous chapter, or a different translator within a committee did one chapter and another did the next. Otherwise, it's very hard to guess why they would translate the same words separated by only three verses differently. However it came about, it is a great lesson for us once again. If we hang our hat on a single translation, we will inevitably come to an erroneous conclusion about things. 
It is one thing to read the word in a general form as we do each day, and it is another thing to do an in-depth study and rely solely on whatever translation we happen to have at the time. For example, the King James Version, which the New King James is based on, got both of these verses wrong. Thus, an error in thinking concerning our theology can be the only result. For now, Moses continues with the thought, with verse 1 going on, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. These words, again, follow from verse 531. As we just cited, the Lord said, Stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them. The Lord spoke out the commandment, and Moses was instructed to then lamad, or teach the people out of that spoken command. Moses is to be the one to goad the people, as that word means, prodding them along in order that they may learn to be obedient to the Lord. And the purpose is so, verse 1 continues, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. Again, the words follow after verse 531, with a noticeable difference though. There it said that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Moses changes the word slightly because he is not going into Canaan with them. The Lord said, which I am giving them to possess. Moses now says, which you are overim, or crossing over to possess. It is referring to Hayarden, or the Jordan, which means the descender, and which pictures the coming of Jesus Christ. Moses is not crossing over anything. Why? Because he pictures the law. As I have highlighted a couple of times, the verb overim, or cross over, is identical in spelling to the noun Ivrim, or Hebrew, which means passer over. There is seemingly a subtle pun and an implied theological lesson for us in these words. The passers over will be crossing over, but the law is not a passer over. If not by the law, then it must be by faith. This takes us back to Abraham, the first person noted as a Hebrew. Of him, the book of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The same theme keeps repeating. The inheritance is not of law, but rather it comes by faith. Moses' inclusion of the words atem overim shama, or you are crossing over there, open up the passage and they solidify the same theological message that carries throughout all of scripture. The just shall live by their faith. The typology is so clear. With the coming of Christ, those who are to enter heaven must do so apart from the law, which is pictured by Moses. They must come by faith. Deeds of the law are excluded. For Israel, however, this does not negate that they are given law, and they must live out their lives under the law in order to instruct the people of the world concerning its need for God's grace. And so Moses continues, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. The words of verse 1 were in the plural, you all who are a part of the whole. The words now transition to the singular, you, Israel, as a people who are the whole. The teaching of the commandment and the statutes and judgments serves two purposes. The first is a proper relationship with God, 
Lema'an tira et Yehovah Elohecha. To the end purpose that you may fear Yehovah your God. This was the explicit reason given by the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 4. There it said, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. This was repeated towards the end of chapter 5 as well. Moses repeats it here, noting that this is the first and main purpose of the giving of the law. And that fear of the Lord is demonstrated in obedience. As he next says, verse 2 continues, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. If a father lays out a list of things for his children to do, and they don't do any of them, or if they only do some of them, we'll say the fun stuff, or if they do a shoddy job of the things that they do, then there is obviously no fear of dad, and there is no respect for dad. But if he is a good father, and the things he assigned were intended to be for the good of the family, to help them to learn respect, diligence, and to be industrious. Further, they are to keep the family mutually working towards a good goal, and for the productive, happy, and healthy living of the children who are given the instruction. These and other reasons like them are also the intents of the law. First and foremost, they were to excite in the people the fear of the Lord, but they were also intended for those of subsequent generations as well. As Moses says, it is for, verse 2 continues, you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life. The children of the father that doesn't pass on the value of money will, in a single generation, squander the wealth of those who came before them. The father that doesn't pass on conservative values to his children will have sniveling children who are incapable of handling the responsibilities of life. Cherished traditions, honor, respect, diligence and work, and on and on. All of these must be trained into one's children and into the grandchildren after them. When this doesn't happen, the values set before the people in times past will be lost. It's not if, it will happen. And so will fear of the Lord. But this is quickly what Israel failed to do from Judges chapter 2. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all of the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers... Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. The people failed to heed the words of Moses and the following generations departed from the fear of the Lord. What would be the outcome? Before we see, we need to understand the second purpose for the teaching of the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which follows logically and inevitably from the first. Verse 2 going on, and that your days may be prolonged. A fear of the Lord leads inevitably to prosperity, especially that of life, both quality of life and length of life. When Israel failed to do as instructed and the subsequent generations didn't know the Lord, the result was Judges 2 again. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed after other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Sounds like California, doesn't it? I saw a post this morning of a girl holding up a sign saying, keep God out of California. 
right? That is not a very smart person if she knows who God is. They forsook the Lord, going back to Judges 2, and served Baal and the Ashtoreths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. Both the quality of life and the length of the lives of many were affected through what occurred. The days of the people were not prolonged. The choice was set before Israel, and each generation had to decide how they would carry the charge set before them. For now, Moses continues, verse 3, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. The words remain in the singular. Moses is speaking to Israel as he would to a single person. You, Israel, are to be careful to observe. And there are reasons for this. The first being that it may be well with you. The implication, obviously, is that if they fail to observe, it would not go well with them. And that is what we saw right out of the gate of their history. For the first generation after Joshua, things didn't go well with them. Obviously, this doesn't mean everyone. There were certainly those who prospered even while the nation was being plundered and despoiled. While some were cut down in battle, others lived long lives, never facing danger. But as a people, the singular, they faced the judgment of the Lord for having forgotten the fear of the Lord. Moses next adds on another benefit of carefully observing the charge set before them. Verse 3 continues, and that you may multiply greatly. For just this clause alone, the words return to the plural. They assure terbon meod, and which you all, plural, may multiply greatly. It only makes sense that he would change to the plural here. He is speaking to Israel as a whole, but Israel is made up of people. And so, to entice them to careful observance of the command, he says, Israel, do these things so that it will go well with you. And then one can imagine him sweeping his arm across the entire congregation and saying, and so that each and every one of you may multiply greatly. He's calling for national blessing in order to stir up national unity. But he also calls for individual blessing in order to stir up self-worth within the nation, which will, in turn, further stir up national unity. Any great leader will do the same thing. Ronald Reagan was a champion at it. He will focus on the whole while focusing on the individual within the whole. Verse 3 continues, As the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. The words of this clause and the next are debated by scholars. I'm going to give you a little lesson in Hebrew. Please don't be overburdened, but I felt it necessary because I hate things that aren't tied up properly. Are these words here referring to what was just said, meaning long life and days being prolonged, or are they referring to the next clause, meaning a land flowing with milk and honey? Both could be possible. The Lord has already said this to the people. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. That's Deuteronomy 440. And the Lord has already said this to the people. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's from Exodus 3, verse 8. So it could go either way. Much of the reason for the confusion is the wording of the next clause. Verse 3 continues, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Eret Zavat Chalav Udebash, land flowing with milk and honey. There's no preposition such as in, in a land, even though many translations toss it in there. The New King James Version adds in a long hyphen as a pause, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, long pause, a land flowing with milk and honey. Others adding commas to make it read something like, because Yahweh, comma, the God of your fathers, comma, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the Holman translation. With the varying views, it is obvious that what is said is complicated, and I don't like complicated. And so I would suggest to you that the entire thought of verses 2 and 3 is parenthetical, and it should read as follows. Verse 1, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. Verse 2 begins the parentheses, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, and parentheses, a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll take out the two verses in the middle and read it without it and see if it makes sense to you. Now this is the command, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. Everything was parenthetical. This highlights the two main purposes for observing the commandment, fearing the Lord and the expected blessings upon the people to be contained within the thought of verse one, exactly where it should be. It then ties the land which you are crossing over to possess directly in with a land flowing with milk and honey. In this, the thought flows properly. There's no need to finagle the Hebrew by adding in words or thoughts or comments or whatever that are not in the original. And yes, the Hebrew can bear this translation. It is completely supportable. I sent it to Sergio and said, Sergio, is my translation okay? He said, it is perfectly fine and it makes all the sense in the world. Okay, so the next time you come to this passage and you're reading, remember that everything in verses 2 and 3 is probably parenthetical right up until the last clause where it resumes the narrative. That is my best analysis of this for you on this otherwise difficult section. And it took me about two hours on that one verse to think this through. It's very complicated, but I think that's probably what you need to have when you read the Bible. As far as may not have been two hours, I don't want to over-exaggerate. It may have been an hour and 59 minutes, whatever, okay? I don't know. I just said that off the top of my head. As far as the term a land flowing with milk and honey, this is the first of six times that it is going to be used in the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in scripture. As this is its first use here, and because it is such a commonly used term in scripture, it would be good to review its meaning again. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees, herbs, and flowers, and more. For Israel, the term a land flowing with milk and honey will also possess a spiritual connotation. For them, it doesn't just speak of the physical abundance, but also of spiritual abundance because of the Lord and because they are the Lord's people through whom the word of God comes. The word of God in the Bible is said to be sweeter than honey. It is also equated with milk, which nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. 
The land would literally flow with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives. It would also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives. It is a certainty that if the promise of the Lord's word concerning the abundance of the land is true, so should the abundance of his blessing upon them for adhering to his word, summed up in the very commandment, statutes, and judgments, which he is referring to right now, also be true. With this understood, we now turn to one of the most important verses in all of scripture to consider. I am the Lord your God, and I am one. There is none other than me. But the thinking is not flawed to say I have a son, and together with the Spirit we are one, but we are three. I was there before the world came to be, and I am here right now with you as well. And I shall be ever-present for all eternity. The never-ending story is the one that I tell. And so you shall love the Lord your God. Love me with all your heart and soul and might. With every step you take and on every path you trod, in me you shall rejoice, and in me you shall delight. Our second thought today is Shema Yisrael. It's verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Hear, Israel, Yehovah our God, Yehovah one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is simply known as the Shema, or here. In this, the last letter of the first word, Ayin, and the last letter of the last word, Dalit, are written much larger by scribes than the surrounding text. Thus, they form the Hebrew word Ed, meaning witness. Thus, the Shema is considered as a witness to Israel, testifying to something. Israel is to thus pay heed to what is said learning from its instruction, and applying its truths to their national character. The verse can be translated in four distinct ways, but the two main ideas of any of these translations comes down to either one, the unity of Jehovah, one being, or two, the fact that Jehovah is Israel's only God. Kathy, remember when you said, the Lord our God, the only God, or whatever, how you said it, that second one is the one that you brought up. The latter has been established numerous times, including the first commandment. I am Jehovah your God, which is followed by, you shall have no other gods before me. It has also been established in Deuteronomy 4 that no image of the Lord should be made to represent him because the people saw no form when he spoke to them from the mountain. For these and other reasons, this is certainly not referring to the fact that Jehovah is Israel's only God an already established fact, but that Jehovah is one being. Of this, Albert Barnes rightly states, this weighty text contains far more than a mere declaration of the unity of God as against polytheism, or of the sole authority of the revelation that he had made to Israel as against other pretended manifestations of his will and attributes. It asserts that the Lord God of Israel is absolutely God and none other. He and he alone is Jehovah, Yahweh, the absolute uncaused God, the one who had, by his election of them, made himself known to Israel. Now you remember what it said from Adam Clark earlier, where the Jews were in the synagogue every Saturday and they would harp on that last word, echad, 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 echad. 
because they want to make sure that you understand that there is one God and those Christians are a bunch of heretics, right? They misunderstood something. Matthew Poole succinctly then states it, one in essence and the only object of our worship. The statement proclaims the unity of Jehovah and this is necessary, but it is also problematic, isn't it? Because Jehovah has already been revealed in various otherwise contradictory ways unless the words are taken properly. Of the Shema, scholars give their thoughts along various lines, but many of them will, in one way or another, comment in accord with what Charles Ellicott says here. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. That's correct. But this truth, though visible in the Old Testament by the light of the New, was not explicitly revealed until it came forth in history, when the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, and both sent the Holy Spirit to represent Him in the church. Ellicott and others say that even though the Trinity is visible in the Old Testament, it is not explicitly revealed. Well, this is true, but the argument is always made against the Jewish belief that there is one absolute God, meaning a monad, not a plurality of any type or other, okay? In this, the analysis is faulty because Jehovah is clearly identified as a physical presence in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? He also is identified as a physical being, a man, in Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. It says, Jehovah walked up to Abraham. Everybody remember that? Moses has already shown that there is more to Jehovah than meets the eye. This will continue to be true again in Joshua 5, Judges 6, Judges 13, Isaiah 6, which was our text verse, Zechariah 12, and elsewhere. Though the set Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, could not be deduced from the Old Testament, it may have been actually, but it probably could not have been, a plurality within the Godhead could. Only a presuppositional bias against the premise would result in the denial of such. The words of this verse in no way deny the possibility of a unity within a plurality. And that is the point that Moses must make and that he is, in fact, making. If he didn't, there would then be a contradiction in what he has already recorded within the Torah. He's saying, Jehovah our God is one, and yet there's Jehovah walking up to Abraham, right? In order to allow for what he has already shown, such as Abraham meeting with the man who is Jehovah, he carefully chose his words. The final word of the verse, echad, means one, but it is often used in the sense of one inclusive of many. For example, Genesis 2 verse 24, using the word echad, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become lebasar echad, two, one, flesh. Genesis 11 verse 6 says that the people of the world are am echad, one people. They are many comprising one. A cluster of grapes is one, and yet it is comprised of many grapes. However, in Genesis 22, the word yachid is used three times to describe Isaac, your only son. It signifies one and only one. It is used this way throughout the Old Testament to identify a singularity with no plurality. As Moses used echad, it is painfully obvious that he was making a theological point to substantiate what he already knew. 
He had already written out the Genesis narrative, and he knew that God identified himself in the plural in Genesis 1, verse 26. The Lord also appeared to Abraham, and yet Moses knew that no man could see the face of the Lord and live, as he was told in Exodus 33, verse 20. You see, there's contradictions in the Bible unless you understand what's going on in the Bible. Therefore, Moses was fully aware that Jehovah is a plurality within a unity. Hence, he chose Echad rather than Yahid to speak forth the Shema. Further, we can know with all certainty that Moses' words here refer to the unity of the Lord and not that he is Israel's only God, because Jesus cites the Greek translation of the Shema in Mark 12, verse 29, affirming that it is referring to the oneness of God, of the Lord. The scribe who answered him confirms this as well, showing that this is the accepted meaning of the Shema. Here's what the scribe said. Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. So we don't need to get into a debate whether it's speaking of the oneness of God or whether Jehovah is Israel's only God. It was understood by the Jews, it was understood by Jesus, and it was even understood by the scribe that spoke to Jesus. They all knew that this is speaking of the oneness of God, all right? The immense importance of a plurality within the (laughs) unity of Jehovah will continue to be revealed to Israel, attempting to wake them up to the coming of Messiah. This is why when Christ came and they rejected him, it was not a mere man, but Jehovah whom they rejected. This is evidenced, for example, in the words of Matthew 22. Here's what it says there. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He then said to them, now citing David, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, Adonai in Hebrew, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus plainly asked them who the Messiah would be. They knew from their own scriptures that he would be the son of David. But then Jesus clearly shows them that he would be Jehovah, because he then cites the 110th Psalm, a messianic psalm. In David's words, it says, Jehovah said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Adonai is simply a formal way of David referring to Jehovah. Thus, Jehovah was having a conversation with Jehovah, and yet David identifies them as different entities. What we are seeing here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is Israel's schooling in the nature of God, which began in Genesis 1 verse 1, with the creation by Elohim, which continued with the creation in Genesis 1 verse 2 by the Ruach Elohim, or the Spirit of God, and which was then further elaborated on in Genesis 1 verse 26, which said, then God said, let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. From there, it continued to be refined in Genesis 2, where Jehovah, the Lord Adonai, was introduced. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God, made the heavens and the earth. Each step of the way through the biblical narrative, God is revealing himself to us a little bit at a time. 
It is true that the Trinity is not explicitly revealed as such in the Old Testament, but the concept of a plurality within a unity is not only revealed, it is incontrovertible. It is this statement known as the Shema, which now resolves numerous otherwise contradictory statements thus far revealed through Moses. It shows that they are not in any way to be taken as a contradiction, but as statements of fact which need to be considered and evaluated in light of the God who inspired Moses to write them down. From this verse in Deuteronomy, Joshua will not be considered to be a blasphemer when he worships the man with the drawn sword in Joshua chapter 5, even though he has been instructed just one chapter earlier in Deuteronomy to have no other gods before Jehovah, nor was he to bow down to them, nor serve them. Otherwise, the life of Joshua within the span of less than two months would be a completely contradictory, <laughs> faithless life, destined to be cast into the pit of hell for having rejected the words of the Lord through Moses. But through the simple use of a single word, echad, Moses has opened up the narrative of scripture into one of wonder, amazement, and indeed anticipation concerning who the coming Messiah will be. Instead of being stoned for blasphemy, David's words of the 110th Psalm, which would otherwise be blasphemous, will be pondered, contemplated, and meditated over for generations to come. And the incredible words of Zechariah 12 verse 10 will not only make sense after they're fulfilled, they will perfectly fit with all that the other prophets testified to from Zechariah 12. And I will, this is the Lord speaking from a previous verse, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit, there it is from Genesis 1-2, of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierced. So the Lord is saying, I'm going to be pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Unless you understood the doctrine of the Trinity, that verse would make absolutely no sense at all. But when you understand who Christ is, it makes complete sense. There is one God and one God alone. There is no other God. And he is Jehovah, the God of Israel, uncaused, eternal, and unchanging. He was and is and is to come, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one essence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God. When Jesus cited the Shema to the people who confronted him, he didn't just cite that and then begin to explain. Rather, citing the Shema was a part of a greater discourse. Here it is. I'm going to put it in its context now so you can see what was going on around when they were speaking to Jesus. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than 
all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This is the continued thought that Moses speaks at now, saying, Ve'ahavta et Yehovah Elohecha, and you shall love Yehovah your God. The words here and throughout the verse continue to be in the singular. Moses is speaking to Israel as a single entity. The heart of Israel is to love Yehovah their God. Now, let me ask you something. If somebody says, I hate Jesus, are they loving Yehovah their God? No, no because he is Yehovah their God. You cannot hate Jesus and love Yehovah. Hence, they've been under exile for 2,000 years. Pray for the Jewish people. What does it mean to love Yehovah? In the context of Moses' discourse, which is talking about observing his commandments, it means to obey his commandments. One cannot say, I love Yehovah, and not be obedient to his commandments. Because he is God, his words are a reflection of who he is. Unlike humans who lie for pretty much any reason, as Jim brought up today, thus demonstrating a disconnect between their words and who they are, there is no disconnect between the Lord and his words. Does everybody understand that? The Bible is the word of God. We must adhere to the Bible or we are not adhering to and loving the Lord our God. Please keep that in mind always. A person may say, I once was a Navy SEAL, and he could be a complete liar concerning that. We can dismiss his words and not be unloving in the process. But when the Lord issues forth a word, it reflects his very being. Therefore, in rejecting what he commands is to reject who he is. Unfortunately, please understand this. This is taken to unintended extremes by cults all the time. For example, the Hebrew Roots Movement will cite one John and apply those words to the law that we are now looking at. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And they say, see, that means you have to obey the law of Moses. Here's another one from 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. This is an error in theology. The law of Moses is not what John is referring to. In fact, he never refers to the commands of Moses in his writings in such a manner. He is always referring to the new covenant in Christ and the words which are commanded by him. Though it is perfect, meaning the law of Moses, and though it perfectly reveals the intent of God, the law of Moses is only a partial and an incomplete revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the final and full revelation which the law of Moses only anticipated. Thus, to love God is to keep his commandments and to do so in the context of the times in which a person lives. This is why the psalmist was well-pleasing to God. In the 119th Psalm, the psalmist says again and again that he loves the Lord's commandments, his word, his precepts, his testimonies, and his law. In fact, every single Bible study, we start by reading one of the octaves. There's 170 verses, meaning 22 octaves of the 119th Psalm, and we read one of those octaves before we do anything else. And every single morning when Charlie Garrett gets up, the first thing he does when he opens his Bible is read one of those octaves of the 119th Psalm, because I want to prepare myself for what I'm about to read. And it's saying, 
observance to the commands of the Lord are preeminent. The love of the commands of the Lord are preeminent. Why? Because the commandments of the Lord reflect who the Lord is. He loved the Lord, meaning the psalmist, because he loved what the Lord had revealed of himself. There was no disconnect between the two. With this understood, Moses next says, verse 5 continues, with all your heart. Bekal levavecha, with all your singular heart. It is the collective heart of Israel. They were to love Jehovah with all of this heart. The heart is the seat of reasoning and understanding in the Bible. Israel was to consider the commandment of the Lord and to apply it to its life. It was to be an ongoing and active process. If someone violated a commandment, he was to offer the appropriate sacrifice for it in obedience to the command. If a person committed a capital offense, Israel was to execute the criminal in obedience to the command. If the nation transgressed as a whole, they were to follow the precepts of the law to make right the wrong that had been done. In 1 Samuel 21, David was faced with such an infraction, which had been committed by his predecessor, King Saul. David took the appropriate action to remedy it. This is what it means to love the Lord with all of your heart. It is to reason out what has been done to offend and then to act in accord with the command to rectify it. Verse 5 continues, with all your soul. Ubekal nafsecha, and with all your soul. The soul is what animates the being. The soul of Israel is then that which animates Israel. It is the life, the breath, and the determination of the people. To love the Lord their God would mean that even unto death, they would be faithful to him. Though not of the covenant people, Job was such a soul, saying, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Likewise, the psalmist spoke of the full confidence he had in the Lord, knowing that holding fast to him, even in the face of death, was a reward all by itself. He said, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? The soul of Israel was to love the Lord their God, holding nothing back. And then finally, Moses instructs them, verse 5 finishes with, and with all your strength. And with all your strength. The word me'od signifies muchness, force, or abundance. Like if I said tov me'od, it would mean good, a plenty. okay? It's muchness. One could consider the word vehemence. It is holding nothing back as one sets his course. Thus, the strength of Israel was to be expended on the Lord God, solely, without holding back, and entirely. This would not lastly, but firstly, include their wealth. When people work for a set goal, it is with the strength that they have to obtain what they want. If it is a person's desire to increase in wealth, then it should also be the person's desire to use that wealth as a way of demonstrating his love for the Lord. Unsurprisingly, Jesus uses this exact example to show the hearts of the people in Luke 21. Here's what it says. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put all the livelihood that she had. 
Our physical person is often completely tied up in the wealth that we possess. This woman's next meal was to be her strength, and the money to buy that meal was indicative of where her love was directed. And so giving up her meal, and thus her source of strength, she showed that she loved the Lord her God with all of it. In the end, to love the Lord your God is not merely to make a profession with the lips, but to then put the total source of who one is, the heart, the soul, and the strength behind that profession, yielding to the Lord all of it at all times. As a point to close on today, it must be noted that when the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus with their question concerning the greatest commandment, he gave his response as we noted, citing the Shema, and then to love the Lord and one's neighbor. After that, in both Matthew and Mark, the next thing that is mentioned is Jesus then asking them whose son the Christ would be. Everything in the Gospels is placed in a particular manner to form a particular context. It is when they answered that he would be the son of David that Jesus then cited the 110th Psalm that we looked at. He did this for a reason. He was trying to call the attention of the people to the fact that the Shema says there is one God, and yet there is a plurality within the Godhead that is allowed by the Shema as testified to by David. It is the central theme of Scripture, one which goes from the very first page of the Bible even to its very last. Jesus Christ is God. In fact, the very definition of Antichrist, which will be our closing verse today, is to deny this fundamental tenet of Scripture. John defines it in both 1 John and 2 John as being such. Therefore, when we are told that God is one and that Jesus is God, that is to be accepted and to be acted upon. We are to receive him as such, glorifying God the Father through our pronouncement. And then we are to love Jehovah our God, meaning inclusive of the incarnate word Jesus, with all of our hearts, souls, and strength. We are to be obedient to the commandments of God in order to demonstrate that we truly love God. And John shows us where the beginning of that love is found. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent, John 6, 29. To love God is to believe God and to do the work of God, and that work is to honor the Son whom God has sent. The passage today has shown that there is no contradiction in the word. Rather, it is laid out step by step in a methodical manner in order to reveal to us what God has been doing in the stream of time to bring us back to himself. Let us apply what we have learned accept what God has revealed, and bring glory to God through the honoring of his Son. And let us do so with all of our hearts, souls, and strength. May it be so. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read these words. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is the gospel. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. Which I preach to you, which... Also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Here is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. That means that we are sinners. The cross is right there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It may not be stated explicitly, but it is right there. He died for our sins. 
the cross is what makes that possible, according to the scriptures. And then he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ came out of the grave, proving that he's Jehovah, right there. So you have called on the Lord. You've believed in your heart that he died for your sins and he was resurrected again, and you are saved. And if you've never done that, you need to do that because there is only one place that you will go if you're not going to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus. Please call on him today. Give your life to the Lord. Allow him to lead you. Be obedient to his commandments in the proper context. Follow him. Pursue him. Read his words. Love him. Always. Our closing verse comes from 1 John 2. It's 22 and 23. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also because they are one. Next week is Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 15. And the crier cries out a resounding chord. It's entitled, Beware, Lest You Forget the Lord. That'll be our 24th Deuteronomy sermon. As I tell you each week, except last week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I have today a stealth fighter that I will fly you around and you cannot fly this because you're not trained. But I will fly you around in this if you can answer the following question. Now, Kathy and John are forbidden from answering because we were talking about this earlier when they walked in. And so I couldn't think of another question, so I thought of this. What holidays are we instructed to observe from Scripture, and what verses tell us this? You get to fly around in this great plane, this stealth fighter. We'll be, nobody will be able to detect us as we fly over Sarasota. What holidays are we instructed to observe from Scripture, and what verses tell us this? Anybody? None. What? None! None! Okay, you got half of it. You got a Maserati coming. Do you want to fly on this airplane? What verses tell you that? It's in the Bible. Yeah, all right. I'll give you. Okay. He said it's in the Bible. I'll give you a ride on my YF-22. All right. I'm going to take you to the book of Colossians. I'm going to take you to the book of Colossians. I got to get there first, okay? And I'm going to take you to chapter 2. And it says right here, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival, that means the Feast of the Lord, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. Don't let anybody judge you. And it says right here, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And after the coming of Christ, guess what? He didn't institute any observances for us. We don't have to observe the Sabbath, or we can. He says in Romans 14, 5, I think it says, you know, one person observes one day, and one person observes every day, and let each man be convinced, you know? I know that's a paraphrase, Charlie Garrett paraphrase, but we are not commanded to observe any festivals or holidays. Or And if you do, do it to the glory of the Lord and don't let people legalize you out of your joy, okay? Somebody tried to legalize me out of my joy on Facebook today, and that's why I decided to, yeah, no, not me personally. It was just a meme about, you know, it was something that said something like, um, why are Christians observing all of these other holidays, but not the ones 
you know, instructed by the Bible. And my response to him on the post was, which ones are you talking about? I'm curious to know which ones you're telling me the Bible tells us to observe because it does not tell us to observe any of them. None of them. Okay? I don't care. This is going to upset people. I'm going to lose subscribers right now. But I don't care if you observe Christmas or not. It doesn't make any difference to me. If you're doing something, do it to the Lord. And we all know what Christmas signifies. It's the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb. That's when he was conceived. He was born on Yom Teruah, the day of acclamation. If you don't know that, go watch the Feast of the Lord sermons, okay? He was conceived on 25 December or in that area. If it's on this particular day and you backdate it 270 days, it comes out, I think it was 19 times in the past 100 years to 25 December. So one year it happened and some scholar figured it out and said, well, we're going to observe it on that day. It is the birth of the Lord. Not out of the womb, but in the womb. The incarnation. All right. We've got to take communion. Oh, wait a minute. Let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father. Oh, no, I didn't read the poem. Hey, see what happens when you guys can't answer a question? I've got to go through all of this stuff. All right. Now, I've got a poem for you. We're going to read this, and then we'll be done. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, so you are to do, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged too. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey too. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. You shall do this all your days, not just at the start. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the surety that we possess in Scripture when it's taken in context. And we know that we can refute the people that come against us because of our theology, because it's already laid out by you in advance. You've given us everything we need to know to understand your nature, who you are, what you expect of us, and what you have done for us. And we thank you for all you've done for us because not one of us deserves it. Not one of us could come into your presence even for a flashing moment without the covering of the precious blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for Jesus who has done this for us, who was willing to step out of the eternal realm to unite with human flesh and to suffer the punishment that he did and the torture of the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. Thank you for that most wonderful of acts. Thank you. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And we do so to your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Now, just, I always qualify this because I say something in a sermon. I don't want people to think anything other than the intent of the sermon. Okay, so I said that loving the Lord your God with all your strength means devoting all of your wealth to the Lord. And when I say that, I'm not talking about giving to the superior word church. We've never asked for a penny for this church. Never. Okay, we've asked for other 
ministries and people, and you give according to how you feel about it. That is your responsibility. I, I want to help Isaac in Uganda. I want to help the Superior Word Church in Kenya. I want to take care of these people over here. That is your choice. But whatever you do, do it to the glory of the Lord. Because if you're not, you're not going to get one reward for it. You're wasting your time and your effort. To the glory of God alone. Okay? 